Father God, we uh, thank you for the Song of Songs. We thank you for this unique Bible, uh, book within the Bible. Uh, we praise you because we believe that it is, it is inspired by you uh, just as much as the Book of Romans or the Gospel of Mark or any of the, of the other books. And we pray, Lord, uh, with that faith that you would speak to us uh, through this uh, marvellous book uh, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, surprisingly, I've uh, preached on this uh, passage once before. Uh, I don't have the notes anymore. It's about 15 years ago, and it was whilst I was living in Spain. I was given the opportunity to preach at the uh, small Brethren Church, rather severe Brethren Church, where we were worshipping at the time. And I'd read some good stuff on, by C.H. Spurgeon about the Song of Songs, so I thought I could give it a go. Uh, the people were very kind, until after the service, one of the elders came up to me and said, I've made two mistakes. The first was that I'd used uh, the wrong Spanish verb for uh, when I was talking about being refreshed under the apple tree. So instead of being refreshed, uh, as you are when you eat a good apple or drink a good drink, I actually said, you're making yourself frisky. <laughs> Which in the context, of course, made some sense, but not entirely right. Secondly, and this is where he really put the boot in, he said, of course, we don't believe in preaching this as allegory. I blame Spurgeon. <laughs> Although as an Anglican, uh, of course, they, uh, um, you, uh, you understand if you know Brethren Churches, the mistake that it is to preach as an allegory, uh, the Song of Songs. But as an Anglican, they weren't sure I was a Christian anyway, so I only really confirmed their worst expectations. I do love these people a lot, actually. They're still my friends. It reminds me of the time I said, I said to the bishop, uh, the Episcopal Bishop of Spain, um, I'm feeling a little bit pregnant, which if you know Spanish, you understand it's a very easy mistake to make. All of this shows not only the difficulty of speaking in a second language, but also the difficulty of interpreting the song or songs. What does it all mean? Does it mean anything at all? Should we look for meaning in it? Or is it just some kind of sexy book that somehow, somehow found its way into the Bible? Well, what I want to do tonight, fairly unusually, is talk a little bit to begin with about the different ways of interpreting this book, hopefully explaining what, how we can read it and why we should read it, and then illustrate that by using chapter two and what I believe are the two love poems we find there. The two poems I've called Desire Redeemed and Anticipation Enacted. But first, how should we read this book? Well, a song of songs, the best of songs, it means. They're not necessarily the songs of Solomon. Nobody really knows. Uh, it says that they are, uh, so why not? It doesn't really matter. What we clearly have here is love poetry of some sort. In Hebrew, we don't have rhyming verse, but we have something called parallelism, which is about repeating phrases and verses and changing their order around and things like that. There's that here. There's intense imagery and there's figurative language, exactly what we'd expect to find in poetry. But what is this book of erotic love poetry doing here in the Bible? You can understand why people throughout history, well before Christianity came along, started to treat this as an allegory. Allegory is not meant to be read on face value. The true meaning is lying somewhere just below the surface, and it's down to the reader to find out what it's really all about. Like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is not really about a long journey uh, by a bloke called Christian. 
or The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is not really about four children who speak to animals. Allegory downplays the obvious love poetry in the Songs of Songs and says that each verse should be interpreted as something to do with God's love for Israel. Ancient Jewish commentary put it a bit like this as an example. The woman Israel begs her man God to kiss her. Israel desires relationship with God. She praises his reputation and asks him to take her into his private room. The bedroom is Palestine, the promised land. The kiss is the giving of the law. The girl's dark skin is the admission of her guilt in worshipping the golden calf at the bottom of the mountain. And so it goes on. And early Christian writers like uh, uh, Origen, who was around in the second, second century AD, saw no reason to go away from this allegorical interpretation. He felt so strongly that spiritual things should be separated from fleshly things that he went ahead and castrated himself. That's taking it a little bit too far. And it's not surprising that when he came to write his ten volumes of commentary on the Song of Songs, it was apparently nothing to do with sexual love at all. One commentator says, what Origen did to his own body, he did via allegorical inter interpretation to the Songs of Songs, he dissexed it. More recently, John Wesley, the Methodist leader in the 18th century, described the natural reading of the book as absurd and monstrous. And as we've seen, C.H. Spurgeon in the 19th century, a brilliant preacher, uh, also enjoyed a bit of allegory. And that's the thing, isn't it? Allegory is fun, and it can be quite uplifting. I get quite encouraged by something, some of the things that Spurgeon has to say. Unfortunately, it's probably wrong in this case. You see, the interpretations that are made are often so ad hoc that there's no real basis underlying them, apart from perhaps what's going on in the mind of the preacher. They tell us more about the mind of the preacher than they do about the original intention of the writer. And also, since the 19th century, archaeology has um, turned up lots of other ancient texts of love poetry which go along in a very similar vein, but are non-religious texts. So return to the fact that this is love poetry, plain and simple. Now, opinion is divided. Is it one poem with a single overarching narrative or plot line? Or is it more like an anthology of love poems with perhaps between 10 and 35 different separate poems within the collection? Well, I think it's more the latter, a collection of different poems. But there's repeated themes throughout the book which show some kind of overall coherence. In which case, if we take it that way, the main characters of the poems are still the woman and her lover. But there's also this chorus of young women, the daughters of Jerusalem. And it's obvious that when the, the woman turns to the daughters, the woman attempts to teach them something about the nature of love and its appropriate behavior. In other words, the daughters of Jerusalem are, are almost a substitute for you and me as we read the book, as we read the Song of Songs. And we're meant, we're meant to learn from the woman's asides to them something for ourselves about love. Of course, being poetry, we still have to unpack the metaphors and understand the ancient customs that underpin the thoughts and the emotions evoked by the poet, just as we would with any other poetry. So we're back to this question again. Why is there this book of erotic love poetry sitting here in the middle of the Bible? Well, let me answer that briefly by uh, two questions. First, where would the Bible be without the Song of Songs? What would be left? Well, there'd be a, 
Let's say we have fair amounts written about sex. But most of it would be fairly negative in tone. It would be more, uh, don't do this sort of thing. Or it would be about people getting into trouble over sex. Think David and Bathsheba, Dina, all the people of Sodom. There would be very little celebration of sex and intimacy, physical intimacy. So what the Song Song shows us is that our God is interested in our whole human experience. He's interested in our whole sexuality, which is such a large part of that experience. The Song of Songs is a celebration. It's about the thrill and the power of love, as well as the pain that sometimes comes with it. But we also need to ask the second question. Where would the Song of Songs be without the rest of the Bible? You see, the song is not a how-to manual, which I'm sure is a relief for those of you with illustrated Bibles. That was a joke. (laughs) Nor is it some kind of ethical guide to sex. You see, it needs the rest of the Bible to put its celebration of love into the right context. A commentator put it like this, to make sex the centre of one's life is to devote one's life to capricious, capricious and dangerous God. Love and sex have important roles in our lives, but they should always be subordinate to our devotion to God. Just as a song finds its proper interpretation only in the context of the Bible as a whole, so our sexual life finds its place only in the broader context of our devotion towards God. Love and sex are not the final answer to life's troubles or meaning. You see, anyone who seeks satisfaction and meaning in sex alone will always be left wanting more from their relationships. You know, it's significant, right at the end of the Song of Songs, the climax is not some final satisfying embrace between the two lovers. It's an expression of yearning for more. Let me hear your voice. Come away, my lover. Say the final two verses. But seeing the Song of Songs in the context of the whole Bible throws up another point which we also can't ignore. And that is that there are only two exclusive relationships in the Bible. Two exclusive relationships in the Bible. The sexual union within marriage, and secondly, the covenantal union between God and his people. In Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, Ezekiel, Hosea, Ephesians, and Revelation, God's relationship with his people is compared to a marriage. So in that way, the Song of Songs, which talks about erotic love, becomes not an allegory, but it is still an illustration of how we, the bride, God's people, should feel towards the bridegroom, that is Jesus. So let's see how this works out in practice and turn finally in our Bibles to chapter 2 and the two poems which I've called Desire, Redeemed and Anticipation Enacted. So firstly, the first of those in verse 1. The woman declares, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. It's a fairly uh, modest description of her beauty. There weren't roses in Palestine at that time. They didn't come along until much, much later. It was just a wildflower in the Sharon Valley. But it's a great way to flirt, isn't it? Oh, I'm quite ordinary, really. Nothing much to look at. Just one among many. The lover hearing her words, rises to the challenge. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the the maidens. He's good, isn't he? He's good. You're so much more beautiful than all these other women. Proudly, she turns to her attendants, these daughters of Jerusalem, 
In other words, she turns to us, the reader, and says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. She points out that he is like no ordinary tree of the forest. He is an apple tree, defined by its sweet aroma and its wholesome fruit. He gives shady protection from the midday sun, and even, even better, offers a sweet-tasting fruit to eat. Here read euphemism for sex. He has taken me to the banquet hall, literally the wine house, which sounds a bit seedy, doesn't it? But it means a drinking establishment. Wine is associated with love throughout the book of Song of Songs. The intoxication of her love for her lover is akin to the intoxication of too much wine. And his banner over me is love. You see, there's no hiding this love. The word translated here, banner, really literally describes the military flag of each tribe, the, the flag they carry with them into battle, saying, this is my tribe, this is the tribe that I belong to. It's proud possession. She is mine and we are in love. Verse 5. Not only is she intoxicated, she's quite worn out by, by the, certainly the psychological effort of the emotion of love. And perhaps she's worn out by the physical effort of it too, if you get what I mean. She needs to be strengthened with raisins, which if you believe Hosea 3 and chapter 1 are probably an aphrodisiac used in pagan worship. She's refreshed by, refreshed by his apples. She becomes quite faint or sick with his love. And they continue to hold each other in erotic embrace, verse 6, tired but happy and wanting to carry on in this embrace of intimacy. Do you think they quite like each other? You kind of get that feeling, don't you? It's a real celebration of their love, their sexuality and their desire for one another. It reminds us of possibly the first ever love poem in the history of the world, which is, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, call, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. From Genesis chapter 2. You could use that in your Valentine's Day card. But remember, back there in Genesis 2, it was God who met Adam's desire for company by creating Eve from one of his ribs and giving them in marriage to each other. The next verse, 24, is, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And that means, in verse 25, the next verse, it says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So God created Eve to, mat to match Adam's desire for company. They were married. They became one flesh. And they shared their nakedness and they felt no shame. Just like our couple in the Song of Songs and here in chapter 2. They're naked in each other's brace. They feel no shame, just as God intended. These lovers have achieved a marvellous intimacy, almost akin to that of Adam and Eve in the garden. And yet, and yet, they're conscious of another reality too. You see in verse 7, as the woman turns again to the daughters of Jerusalem, she sounds a note of caution. She says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Gazelles and does 
uh, uh, Hebrew wordplay, and it's almost like a pun on the word God Almighty. So it's almost swear by God Almighty. So God is mentioned there, but it's kind of hidden a little bit. Swear by God Almighty, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. In other words, don't force it. Don't rush it, dear readers. Wait for love to blossom. It will come. Why should we wait? Because the implication is that love takes its toll on a woman, or for that matter, a man. It's such a powerful emotion that you can become quite worn out by it, intoxicated by it, possessed by it. Love is stressful, as somebody said earlier on. Who was that? (laughs) Perhaps she remembers that in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, where God says to Eve, he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That desire becomes a curse, an unhealthy, controlling desire, a battle between the woman wanting to manipulate or to control and the man's desire to rule. What the couple experience in Song of Songs is desire within its place, desire which has been awakened by God, But they know that there is this danger. There's this danger that the desire becomes something else entirely. St. Augustine wrote this. He said, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in him. So, here in this love poem, there is this celebration of desire, but there's also this note of caution. The danger that we are trying to arouse desire where there is no lover, where there is no love. Where desire just becomes this means of control. Now, why is that? Well, it's because we live in this fallen world. Whereas we can celebrate so much good, we also recognize that good so quickly turns to bad. And the same is true, isn't it, of our relationship with God. Our desire for God can so easily be disrupted by so many other things. But can we really apply this poem to our desire for God? Well, Hosea 14 compares God to an olive tree and his fragrance to a cedar of Lebanon and men and women will dwell again in his shade. And Psalm 121, verse 5 says, The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The link there to the apple tree and the shade that is produced is is fairly clear. So how much do we desire to rest in this shade? C.S. Lewis, um, in Surprised by Joy, um, writes this. He says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, falling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in in the garden in the slum, because he cannot imagine what it's meant to be by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, shouldn't our desire for God be at least as strong as this couple's desire for one another? 
It's a pity sometimes that we often know so much about Christ and yet enjoy him so little. People tell me that they come to Holy Trinity because they enjoy the teaching, and that's great. I, I think that's fantastic. It's essential that we allow ourselves to be taught by the Word of God. But wouldn't it be a shame if our desire of God, if our enjoyment of God stopped at an intellectual understanding of the sermon? You see, it seems to me that sometimes we need to throw ourselves at Christ once more, out of sort of passionate desire for him. And I don't mind, I don't mean this kind of artificial ripped-up enthusiasm of sort of big conference-style worship or whatever else gets you enthusiastic. Because after all, we should not arouse or awaken desire and to love until it so desires. But I mean is a genuine willingness to let go of ourselves and just to throw ourselves down in the shade of Christ and say, okay, what now, Lord? Or Lord, tell me how I need to change. I'm in your hands. I've counted the cost of following you, and I still want to do it. I still desire you. You see, that's real desire for Christ, knowing that Christ is going to call us to speak to our neighbours and still wanting to do it. Knowing that Christ expects us to love unlovable people, knowing that Christ wants us to pray with other Christians when it would be far more comfortable staying at home in our nice houses, and still desiring Christ, still desiring to be with him. Why should we feel that way? Why should we feel this desire for Christ? Why should we feel this desire for God in that way? Well, because if you're a Christian, then you will know how much Christ has forgiven you and the price that he paid on the cross for your sins so that your desire, our desire for God might be redeemed by the price that he paid and our relationship with God might be restored. See, just as the couple restored their relationship to an intimate relationship akin to that of Adam and Eve in the garden, we can restore our relationship to God, again akin to that between Adam and Eve in the garden. It's not perfect, but it's on its way. We can enjoy that relationship with God because of the price paid for us by Christ on the cross. The woman says, I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Do we delight in Christ? Spurgeon, give me that religion which cheers my heart, fires my soul, and fills me with enthusiasm and delight, for that is likely to be the religion of heaven. How much do we desire God? We now turn to our second poem, which I've called Anticipation Enacted. So sense the excitement in the woman as she watches her lover come bounding towards her over the hills, like a gazelle or a young stag or like a bad 1980s movie. He overcomes every obstacle as he runs towards her, but then at the last moment he stops. He waits behind the wall. The romantic tension is rising. He does not assume that he will be invited in. There's a pause. Finally, he speaks, and he says in verse 10, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. He really is very good, isn't he? Spring. The universal time for love has come. The winter has passed. Flowers appear. Birds sing. Trees blossom. And once again, in verse 13, the refrain, Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Do you notice the anticipation 
as she watches him bound over the hills as he makes her way towards her. But also whilst he waits behind the wall before his voice rises through the stonework, stonework inviting him to join her. And also in their long wait for winter to become spring. For the time for the flowers to come and the blossom and everything else. For the perfect time for their joyous lovemaking. Notice also that he doesn't come into the house. You see, in the Song of Songs, the built-up areas are never the place for love. She must come out and join him in the countryside, come to the clefts of rock, the hiding places on the mountainside and the vineyards where their intimacy will not be disturbed. You see, there's real anticipation as a wait for the appropriate time and the appropriate place for their lovemaking. But notice once again the note of caution here. The anticipation involves preparing by removing anything that might spoil their intimate moment. Verse 15, that strange little verse in there. Catch for us the foxes. The little foxes that ruin the vineyards are vineyards that are in bloom. Not only do you not want a fox running past you whilst you're cuddling up to your lover, if you want to be refreshed by his fruits, you don't want to find the foxes have got there first, do you? You want privacy and you want exclusivity. You see, jealousy is a good emotion when it's applied to marriage or to relationship of, with God. You see, although in Christ our relationship with God has been redeemed, we still allow sin to get in the way. We can enjoy moments of intimacy and joy in our new relationship with God, and yet we still struggle to spend time with him. Our intoxication with him is weakened by our sin. So what does it mean to prepare to meet our God? What aspects of our lives need to be caught and removed from the vineyard? Where aren't our lives bringing glory to God? My lover is mine and I am his, says the woman in verse 16. And in Jeremiah 7 and chapter 11 and in Ezekiel 34, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that promise is fulfilled in Revelation 21, which says, And now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, that day will only be fulfilled on the wedding day. On the wedding day between the Lamb and his bride, which is us, the people of God. There is a time and a place where our intimacy with God will be made perfect. And that is when heaven and earth pass away to be replaced by something new at the wedding of the Lamb. When God himself will dwell in the new Jerusalem, in the new city with us. Until then, we await with eager anticipation and we ensure that our hearts are prepared for that meeting with God, which we know will come. Let us pray. Lord God, as we uh, look ahead to that time when we will one day live with you, in the new heaven and the new earth, dwelling with you, having our relationship with you perfectly restored. We pray that 
we will look forward to that day with anticipation and we will prepare our hearts and we prepare our lives to be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.